here in the passage before us, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, we read about the first of two cleansings of the temple. This one occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the other occurs at the end. Some have doubted that there were two cleansings, and they've postulated that John's account and the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the same event, that they're all telling the same story. They reason that Jesus couldn't possibly have cleansed the temple twice. But why not? What, what makes that impossible? In fact, what, what makes it even improbable? If Jesus was angry enough to do it once, would he be unmoved and apathetic enough to refrain from doing it a second time? Would the first cleansing be the once for all solution to the commercializing of temple worship so that a second cleansing wasn't needed? After Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, no one ever went back to buying, selling, trading, exchanging. To the contrary, it's most likely that the next day, possibly even later the same day, everybody was back doing the same thing that they'd been doing all along. The activities that Jesus was incensed about would have resumed probably very quickly. And it's most likely that Jesus would be more than willing to take the same action again under similar circumstances. John clearly intends to put this account at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. John has just started his account. And sometimes he arranges material thematically as opposed to chronologically. And it's conceivably possible But it does seem that he's trying to put this chronologically here. He's just talked about uh, the changing of the water to wine. And then after this, they go down to Capernaum. And then it seems that he's saying, at that time, the Passover was at hand. The other authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, put their account of a temple cleansing at the end of Jesus' public ministry, chronologically. So either John is... Uh, really pulling this way out in order to make a theological point of its chronological order. Or he's just describing a different event. One argument for it being at the beginning, this actually occurring at the beginning, is that Jesus' phrase about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days, the witnesses at his trial had some difficulty agreeing about what it was exactly that he said. If that had happened the same week, just a couple of days prior, it would be unlikely that they would have difficulty agreeing about that or difficulty recalling. It seems most likely that they were trying to recall an event that was a few years earlier, namely this first cleansing that occurs in John. It seems best just to take... Matthew, Mark, and Luke at face value, and John at face value, and accept that there were two cleansings, and that the cleansings bookended Jesus' public ministry. Now, if this is correct, 
Then the cleansings of the temple were somewhat defining features of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus' ministry began and ended with the cleansing of the temple. How zealous Jesus must then be about worship. And that's actually exactly what we should have expected of the Messiah based on the Old Testament. As John notes here in chapter 2 and verse 17, it's predicated of the Messiah in Psalm 69 and verse 9 that zeal for God's house will consume him. In this, Psalm 69, 9, and other places throughout the Old Testament, we are led to expect that the Messiah would be concerned for the purity of worship. Therefore, in an implicit sense, the cleansing of the temple was prophesied. There's no passage in the Old Testament that says, Jesus of Nazareth shall come and make a cord of whips and overturn tables and drive out and so on and so forth. But thematically, the idea that the Messiah will cleanse, will purify the worship of the Jews is very much contained in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 21, as the capstone to a section about the results of the Messiah's work, we read this, there shall no longer be a trader, not traitor, trader, one who trades in the house of the Lord of hosts. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts as a result of the Messiah's work. As a result of the Messiah's work, worship shall no longer be polluted by the motive of profit. If worship were polluted by the motive of profit at the time when the Messiah appeared on the, on the scene... What would you expect that he would do then? Drive the traitors out from the house of the Lord. In keeping with Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 21. And this is exactly the situation in which Jesus cleanses the temple. The proper place for worship was Jerusalem. The temple. It wasn't acceptable to worship anywhere that you want, anywhere that you see fit. According to the prescriptions of the Old Covenant, you had to worship where God said you had to worship. And that place was the temple in Jerusalem. And so people would come from all over. Jews would come from all over to worship there. If you were traveling a long way, you wouldn't bring your livestock with you. You'd bring equivalent currency. And you'd leave your livestock at home. And then when you got to Jerusalem, you'd purchase the livestock that would be used in your sacrifices. Nothing wrong with that. That's completely fine. That's completely legitimate. Now, if you traveled... 
a long way, perhaps from another country, you wouldn't come with the same currency that was used in the temple. And so you would need to exchange your money. Just as if you traveled to the U.S., you can't spend Beijing dollars. You've got to exchange your money. And so the currency exchange that was happening was necessary. The purchase of livestock that was happening was necessary. It was legitimate. It was fine. Jesus doesn't drive them out because they're charging too much interest. He doesn't drive them out because they're exchanging currency at bad rates. He doesn't drive them out because they're selling the livestock at too high a cost. He drives them out because he says in verse 16 that they ought not to make his father's house a house of trade. In other words, get your business in order and then come and worship. Don't mingle the two. When it's time to worship, worship. And don't distract those who have come here to worship but with the buying and selling of livestock. Don't distract them with the exchange of money. Let those who have come to worship, worship. This was the problem that Jesus was addressing. The worship in the temple was compromised by the traders who bought and sold and exchanged currency within the temple precincts. Zechariah 14 and verse 21 implicitly prophesies that the Messiah would cleanse the temple. Because in the day of his arrival, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 begins with a seemingly positive prophecy about the arrival of the Messiah. Zechariah is the second last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book. And Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Behold, I have sent my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy of the Messiah coming into his temple. Hooray! And yet Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as refiner, as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The Messiah is going to purify the worship of God's people. But it's not going to be painless. It's going to feel like passing through the fire. He's going to be like a purifying fire that comes and burns away the impurity 
burns away the dross. So what is left is pure. What is left is good. Those who worship impurely will feel the heat of the coming Messiah. He's not just going to be a lamb, but he's going to be a lion. And he is going to bring the fire of judgment, of refining, of purifying upon all those who are impure. The end result will be that God's people worship purely, but the process itself will be painful. Jesus goes into the temple in John chapter 2 as a refiner of silver and gold, as a fuller with soap to cleanse, to purify. In view of these things, the cleansing of the temple was a sign in itself. The Old Testament led us to expect that the Messiah wouldn't tolerate false worship. That the Messiah wouldn't tolerate impure worship. The Old Testament led us to expect that when the Lion of Judah arrives on the scene, He will roar against those who make a mockery of the temple by trading in it. Who make a mockery of worship by bringing impure silver and impure gold. That there will be a fire that burns against the impurity of worship. That part of what the Messiah would do is cleanse the temple. Jesus says elsewhere to the Pharisees, actually he says it to the Sadducees in the other context, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. When the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, those who are called here in John chapter 2, the Jews, when they come to Him and say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It would have been fitting for Jesus to say, you know not the Scriptures. You know not the Scriptures, because what did you expect to see? But the Lord whom you seek, coming into His temple, like a refiner of silver and gold, like a fuller, burning away the dross, washing with soap, and purifying the worship of God's people. What did you expect to see but the Messiah coming and ensuring that there are no traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts? What did you expect to see when the Messiah arrived on the scene but one who is zealous for the Lord's house? You see, the cleansing of the temple was a sign in itself that the Messiah was here. Jesus was coming and doing those things which the Old Testament led us to expect the Messiah would do. This really should have been a case of Cinderella's slipper finally fitting on someone's foot. 
signaling that the sought-after one has been found. Cinderella's slipper wouldn't fit anyone but her. And the portrait of the Messiah, painted for us in the Old Testament, doesn't fit anyone but Jesus. Wouldn't fit anyone but Him. But it does fit Him. We see in John chapter 2, the messenger of the covenant, prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. The Lord whom the Jews were seeking, suddenly coming into His temple. We see that day prophesied in Zechariah 14, where there are no traitors left in the house of the Lord. We see the refiner's fire burning. We see the fuller's soap washing and cleansing. We see very clearly, if we have eyes to see, we hear as this scripture is read, very clearly, they should have heard in the crack of the whip and in the sound of livestock scattering, running, in the sound of tables hitting the ground. They should have heard loud and clear if they had ears to hear. This man is the Christ. This man is the Messiah. This man is the messenger of the covenant. This man is the Lord whom we have been seeking. That's the significance of the cleansing of the temple. And if we're right that there was two cleansings of the temple, that was the significance of the cleansings of the temple, which bookended Jesus' ministry. That Jesus was purifying the worship of God's people, just as the Old Testament prophesied that He would. Jesus, nevertheless, acquiesces somewhat to their demand for a sign and gives them a very cryptic sign that nobody, including his disciples, understood until after he rose from the dead. So it wasn't much of a sign that day. Everyone, including his disciples, went away bewildered. But in hindsight, it's a sign. And it's a sign which reinforces what we've already seen, that the Messiah would purify the worship of God's people. The Messiah would, in fact, not only purify, but bring to a culmination, a fulfillment, the intended end, the worship of God's people. Jesus' sign is this. From verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Admittedly, they have no idea what he's talking about, and neither do the disciples. Because it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. In other words, before he was raised from the dead, the disciples were like, we have no idea what he's saying. But that was his sign. Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. One commentator that I read said that this might actually have the force of, you are destroying this temple. 
but in three days I will raise it up. I don't have the academic chops to evaluate how credible that is. In our English before us, it says, destroy this temple. That's how the translation committee rendered it. Whether they destroy it, whether he's saying hypothetically if this temple were destroyed, I don't know, 100%. But in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus was talking about raising up the temple of his body, which would be destroyed. No one understood it at the time, but after he was raised, they understood. What did they understand? What did they understand? They understood what Jesus meant to convey here. Which was this. There was a relationship between the temple in which he stood. The temple which he cleansed. By overturning tables. By cracking a whip. And his body. There was a relationship between one temple and the other. There was a relationship between the literal, physical temple made of cut stones and the body of Jesus. What is the nature of that relationship? The nature of the, that relationship is... That Jesus fulfills the image of the temple, the motif of the temple, the type of the temple, just as he fulfills the image, the motif, the type of the priest and the lamb which is offered. Not only is Jesus the consummate priest, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. Not a priest for Jews only, who ministers under the old covenant, but one who ministers on behalf of Jews and Gentiles, as Melchizedek did in his day. Not one who offers sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of others. But one who has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins for he has none. Not one whose ministry is cut short by death. But one who ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Not only is Jesus the ultimate priest the true priest, if you will. Not only is Jesus the true lamb, not a literal lamb with literal wool, but Jesus is called, even we've seen earlier in this gospel, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only were all those priests teaching us there would be a priest who will come, But all those lambs were teaching us there will be a lamb who will come. 
He will be spotless. Without blemish. Not in terms of his skin. The way that a lamb's coat had to be spotless. But in terms of his morality. He would be born of woman. Born under the law, Galatians tells us. To live spotlessly under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. Just like the spotless lamb was a substitute for those who were morally spotted. So the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was a morally spotless lamb. In order that he might be a substitute for those who are morally spotted. Not only were the priests teaching us that there would be a priest to come. Not only were the lambs teaching us that there would be a lamb to come. But the temple itself was teaching us that there would be a temple to come. That the ultimate meeting place of God with man is not a building, but a person. Jesus is the true temple. Just as He is the true priest. Just as He is the true Lamb. Who intercedes for us with God? Who can act as a priest for us before God? Only Jesus. What sacrifice can be offered for us with God? What sacrifice is sufficient that we might be accepted with God? Only Jesus. And where may we meet with God? Where can we come into communion with God? Into fellowship with God? Where can we see God face to face, as it were? Only Jesus. Not only is He the priest, par excellence. The lamb, par excellence. He's the temple, par excellence. Not only is He the true priest, the true lamb. He's the true temple. And so Jesus not only purifies in His Messianic work the Old Covenant worship of God's people in the cleansings of the temple wherein He drove out the money changers and drove out those who were selling livestock within the temple precincts. Not only did He purify the worship of God's people in that sense, but in His Messianic work He also brought the old covenant worship of God's people to its fulfillment. Just as He did in the priestly motif. He brought it to its fulfillment. You don't need those priests anymore because now you've got Me. Not only did He do that with the lambs, you don't need those lambs anymore because now you've got Me. So He did it with the temple itself. You don't need that temple anymore Because now you've got me. You remember what happened to the curtain of the temple at Jesus' death that separated the holy place from those outside. It was torn in two. 
from top to bottom, as if there were hands reaching down from above and tearing it. This won't be necessary anymore. Because now you don't have to go in there to meet with me. Because you meet with me no longer in a building, but in a person. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. That language should be familiar to you because it's on almost every page, if not every page of the New Testament. You'd probably be hard-pressed, especially in the epistles. If you started in Romans, you'd probably be hard-pressed to read through to the end of Revelation and find a page where you don't read in Christ. We are in Christ. In Christ we have forgiveness of sins. We have received God's Spirit in Christ. In Him we have received adoption as sons. We are sustained and strengthened and nourished and preserved every step of the way in Him. And then you know what happens at the end of our lives? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we fall asleep in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. This is where we meet with God. In Christ. Christians are those who have repudiated any other intercessor, any other priest, any other go-between between God and man, and who have confessed, Christ alone is my priest. He's the only bridge I need to God. Christians are those who have repudiated any other Atoning sacrifice. I don't literally offer up bulls and goats anymore because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But I don't even offer up my own goodness. I don't even offer up my own sincerity and motives. I don't plead my case with God based on any other atoning sacrifice. As if I'm going to bring anything else that's going to propitiate God's wrath toward me. Christians are those who say, Jesus and Him alone is my lamb, my atoning sacrifice. And Christians are also those who repudiate any other temple. We don't meet God anywhere else. We have no holy places anymore. You don't have to go anywhere to meet with God. There's no difference between praying in this building and praying in your own room or, or praying in a sewer or a well. The, the dirtiest, most unsanctified place you could think of. When you pray in Christ, it's like praying in the temple. The Old Covenant Temple. Christians are those who repudiate all other priests, all other lambs, and all other temples, and who confess in Christ alone, my hope is found. So, the takeaway here is relatively obvious. 
Our worship ought to be pure. We ought not on the basis that Christ is our temple to think that now it's okay to have worship polluted by motives of profit. Or reputation or whatever else. The Lion of Judah still roars against impure worship as he roared against impure worship in John chapter 2. We ought not to think that now in the New Covenant the standards are lower and it's okay to have bad motives. And it's okay to, to mix sincere, wholehearted worship with insincere, half-hearted worship. We ought not to think that. So we ought to have pure worship. In our homes, when it's time for our own personal devotions, quiet time, whatever you want to call it, When it's time for you to meet with God, you ought to strive to worship purely, to focus, to be wholehearted as you worship God. In your family worship, as you gather together as a couple with your children, if you have them, to worship God, you ought to strive that that would be pure, wholehearted, half-hearted worship, Again, it's no more acceptable now in the New Covenant than it was in the Old. And Jesus didn't like half-hearted, impure worship. We see that in John chapter 2. So we ought to strive for that purity of heart. That wholeheartedness, that sincerity. That consecration, that trade is fine. No problem to exchange currency and buy livestock, but do it another time. And when you come to worship, focus. We have to strive for purity of worship. And we ought to, in view of Jesus' comparison of Himself, or not comparison, but connection of Himself to the temple in which He stood, in view of His lesson that He's going to raise the temple in three days. We ought to take away from that the realization that we ought to worship always and only in Christ. In Christ. Worship is not something that we can do apart from Christ. At least, acceptable worship is not something that we can do apart from Christ. He is the meeting place between God and man. In Jesus' name, ought, in view of these things, to be more than a rote phrase that we tack on to the end of a prayer then. It ought to be the acknowledgement, the recognition That our worship is offered in Christ. That we're meeting with God in Him, in Christ Jesus. We're acknowledging that as we say we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Through Jesus. As if we were standing in the temple precincts, so to speak. In the Old Covenant. Here we are in the temple to worship. So in the New Covenant, here we are in Jesus' In Jesus' name. 
to offer this prayer. To offer up our songs. To offer up ourselves in Christ. These are good reminders for us as Christians. But if any of you who are here with us this morning are not yet trusting in Christ Jesus, these are more than good reminders. These are soul-saving cautions. These are like a light atop a lighthouse. And you are like a ship approaching a rocky shore. Nowhere else, nowhere else can you meet with God but in Christ. Nowhere else can you offer up acceptable worship but in Christ. If you're not a believer, heed the warning. See the beacon of light held out to you here. This is the way. Walk in it. You need somewhere to meet with God. And that where is Jesus. But you can't come in however you see fit. Just as in the Old Testament there were regulations for entering the temple precincts. You can't come in in dirty clothes, so to speak. Not talking about your physical clothes, but your soul. You need cleansing. You need to be washed. You need to come with a sacrifice. The one who can wash you, the one who can cleanse you, the one who can make you acceptable to stand before God in Him, is also Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can't just approach God and Talk to Him directly, without any intercessor, without anyone advocating for you. The priest that you need, the advocate that you need is also Jesus. Unbeliever, let me be as clear as I can. Everything in the Old Testament was not designed... For you to come up with your own temples because you see temples in the scripture and figure you might as well have one too. It was not designed for you to come up with your own lambs because you see lambs in the Old Testament and figure you should have lambs too. It wasn't designed for you to come up with priests, figure you should have a priest because there's priests in the Old Testament and you should have one too. Everything in the Old Testament was designed to point towards the one who would fulfill all of these motifs. Namely, Jesus. Therefore, the Old Testament and the New Testament together are pointing you, lost soul, in one direction. Toward one person. Christ Jesus. That you would cast your soul upon Him. That you would trust Him to be your priest. That you would trust Him to be your atoning sacrifice. And that you would trust Him to be the place that you meet with God. So Christians and non-Christians alike recognize that God desires pure worship. 
We learn that from the first half of the passage before us. Jesus is not pleased about impure worship. Pure worship is necessary. And the worship that we offer to God ought to be offered in and only in Christ Jesus, who is not only the pure, the true priest, not only the true lamb, but also the true temple. In Christ alone, our hope is found.